Welcome back to In Between the Record. This is just two guys having fun discussing obscure, non-mainstream conspiracies and mysteries. We invite you to sit back, relax, and listen to our nonsense. I'm your host, John, as always, and I'm joined by a man who is clever, witty, hyper-intelligent. I can go on and on, except I'm having a terrible time reading his handwriting. The esteemed <laughs> Hollis. How you doing, John? It's always a pleasure to be with you. Always a pleasure to chat with you. Uh, thank you for coming up and visiting over uh, over the Christmas break. That was epic of you. Really awesome. That was fun. We had a good time seeing you and seeing VR for the first real true time. That was epic. And uh, thank you for Experience. being you and and being a, a, a kick-ass host for me and my dribble. Um, and for you, and hopefully I can work with you and your dribble as well. So. Thank you. Well, we love. First we off, love I, your to, yeah, I do too. I want to say I'm. Um, I we are uh, thankful for you guys who listened. You know, people in Estonia and France and everywhere else. Um, that's absolutely awesome that you guys are, are listening to us and hope you continue to listen to us. Um, and everybody who we know, thank you for listening to us as well. I apologize for the break. Uh, we were going to go ahead and do a podcast face to face. About three weeks ago, uh, didn't happen. Um, and then last week's podcast, we tried new recording software. And how did that go, John? It went uh, wah 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 wah. That's how it went. It's terrible, like the worst yeah. thing ever. Um, and uh, <laughs> it was not savable, so uh, we had to scrap it and start over. So what you're going to be hearing is day two, um, not day two, try two of the podcast that we did uh, last Sunday. So there you go. This happens, folks. You know, uh, taking a deep dive into the uh, into the mysterious world of podcasting, you'll find that there's a lot of work that goes into it. Uh, a lot of planning. There's a lot of graphic design, a lot of editing. You know, and uh, I guess we took a break to enjoy the holidays, our 2021, make some fine adjustments to the show, and uh, in today's episode, we're going to be diving into something. Quite serious, not so mainstream. Something that makes you think about what governments are capable of doing. Even our government. And uh, we, we like to have you question things sometimes. And some of our topics might be humorous and wholesome and some not so much. And... Uh, Hollis has done extensive research on this topic, and I'm sort of going to let him take the reins and, and drive this ship and kind of open your eyes to what has transpired over the past few centuries as far as governments and agencies and, and just corrupt groups experimenting and creating all sorts of nonsense. So, Hollis... I hand it off to you. Today we're going to talk about biowarfare kits. Um, and wondering 
why me, you know, Hollis Parks has has a right to talk about this subject. And if you remember back to our first podcast, we talked about a guy who was responsible for chemical weapons and biowarfare programs. And there's the reason for that. Um, if you think back into the 1990s, there was a TV miniseries called The Stand, originally written by uh, Stephen King. And it had the guy, you know, the moon man and, and other people. And more importantly, it had a disease called uh, Captain Trips. Now, as a friend of mine, Sidonia would have heard me say M-O-O-N. That spells whatever the heck I wanted to spell. Um, and Yeah, you laugh because it's true. And that comes from The Stand. Um, and that movie affected, well, TV series, affected me so deeply that it became a little obsession of mine. Um, I did not watch the newest version of The Stand. It's behind a paywall, and I'm not going to pay just to watch that one show. I'll What's it on Hulu? It. No, it's on CBS Prime. Or no. And Who the hell watches that? Exactly. And they give away one week, um, one week trials, and so I'm gonna wait till the whole thing's done, get a week trial, then binge watch it, and then cancel. Sorry, CBS. Um, but it, it became an obsession of mine, and it became an obsession, uh, obsession because I just really, really wanted to look into bio warfare. Now, I grew up in the '80s, and I grew up in the '90s, and in Fort Pierce, Florida, which is a a site of a nuclear power plant. A site of a lot of really nasty stuff. <laughs> Tim McVeigh's mom um, was it was in uh, Fort Pierce. The hijackers for 9/11 were in Fort Pierce. It's a really weird city. And yeah. um, so I researched. Beautiful this. town. It is beautiful, beautiful town. town. Um, but I researched the snot out of it so much so. In 1999, I wrote a 40-page paper. I got to be because um, it was too long and I had too many spelling errors about by. I later revisited that paper in 2002 when the U.S. government dumped a whole lot of documents about biowarfare and a biowarfare program that quote-unquote ended under the Nixon administration in 1970-ish. Um, I became obsessed with it because I wanted... Germs are something that is, is horrific. Um, and so another thing that got me onto this is when I went to Africa in 1998. Uh, Kenya... Uganda, Tanzania, etc. And when I came home, I was put into ICU with cholera, malaria, and dysentery at the same time. Um, yeah, I was, I was given a 15% chance of living you. and a 5% chance of living. Um, I still have the quarantine, um, uh, uh, quarantine flyer, or not flyer, but the, the thing they put Certificate? On. Yeah, and um, I was put in quarantine. I was in the hospital for five days. And then the second I could wheel myself out of the hospital, I did so three times in three hours. <laughs> and so they said, get out. Um, so that doubled my, my passion of bio-warfare. Uh, I got the combo plate. I was stupid. I didn't take my shots. I stopped taking my Larium. I mean, it was, it was bad. I almost died. So I, I am speaking on this subject as a layperson. But I know a lot about it. And I feel okay to go ahead and communicate that to you. Now, with any person who's a layperson, even heck, doctors, I may have some missing holes in it, and I'm sorry for that. But I, I, I think it's something that needs to be explained, and I think America's trip into biowarfare really, truly needs to be explained so you can understand where we're at, why we're at. Because of current <laughs> guidelines and stuff, I will not be going into anything past when we sent everything over to Wuhan um, back under the Obama administration. 
I won't sure. go past that. Uh, and a lot of this information that you've researched and, and I've delved into slightly comes from doctors, comes from highly esteemed PhDs. They know what they're talking about, you know, and um, sorry about the uh, background noise there. I have shut my phone off. Um, <laughs> I was reaching for my phone too. <laughs> but, uh, you, you know, as far as chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear warfare, uh, viruses, fungi, uh, biological toxins, all it, these things have been heavily researched. There's peer-reviewed data. There's all sorts of stuff that Hollis and I, we, 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 we like to dive down into rabbit holes and get lost. And, uh, you know, Hollis, you have firsthand experience having uh, climbed Mount Kilimanjaro, and I mean, you're, you're almost a tall tale. It, it's it's such a fascinating story to hear your story, and maybe we'll do an, a whole episode just on you one day. And uh, yeah, I, I, I got a pretty interesting life too. But this is something that people should 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 really take heed to, and 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 not take things that are given to them at face value. Um, so it, it, you, even though you're not a, you know, a Harvard professor, you, you've got some knowledge into this. Speaking of very interesting stories, I did teach a class at Harvard uh, when I was 17 years old. I taught a debate class at the Harvard National Debates um, and how to uh, – the class was on how to go ahead and have people believe and vote for something that is absolutely abhorrent and you know it's mm -hmm. abhorrent. So basically tricking people into thinking something is up and up when it's actually horrific. Um, interesting. Well, it's interesting you say that because I was, uh, was going to go to this school called Mast Academy in uh, South Florida. Yep. And uh, it's, a, it's a magnet school. And I really wanted to join the debate team there. But, it, you know, it, it just threw me off because I didn't want to become a mass debater. Anyway, uh, tell me more about... Uh... <laughs> Good job. Oh, wow. tell, tell me... Tell me more about your, uh, your, 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 you know, I, uh, time as a so, professor. Um, it was, it's pretty easy. I, so in 1996, I joined, um, Westwood high school's debate, debate team. And, um, I, uh, I became a very quick, very good orator. Surprise, surprise. And, and in 1997, I basically took over the debate team for the teacher. Um, she was, and we, we did something that was different. We watched people speak. We brought in tapes of Hitler, Churchill, Mussolini. We brought in tapes of everybody. Not because we wanted people to believe what they were saying, just so we could steal the best things from them. You know, steal the best way to talk. Because the best way I talk is not the best way that Obama talks. It's not the best way that Trump talks. Not the sure. best way you talk. Um, and just become the best you can. Now, in 1997, I was the Florida State champion senior year. And I won Florida. I was the first person in Florida history to get all perfects on every single, uh, every single speech I made. Around the table, perfect. No, no fives. All just straight sixes. And um, nobody had ever done wow. that before. Nobody had done that. Uh, post that, uh, when I was in college, I was a debater. I beat Harvard at Harvard. Um, I, I beat. I went to. Toronto, I went a whole bunch of places, got personal seconds, never got a personal first, but was in the top debaters in the nation. Um, orators, I should say. So we never really debated, we just spoke um, at each other. 
I would never call it a debate. Uh, ben Shapiro is of, of my ilk. In, um, so that that's that. Uh, I, I basically wanted to go to Harvard National Debate Tournament, uh, student congress, with an abhorrent bill, um, basically putting everybody with HIV in concentration camps and holding there indefinitely until they, until they perished in order to drive the AIDS pandemic down to zero as fast as possible in the United States. Nationwide testing. Um, hey, biowarfare. Funny how that you know does full circle. Um, nationwide testing, putting everybody in, in concentration camps, and then testing six months, then one year out, then 18 months out. All mandatory testing for every person that came to the United States. Um, that was that was my plan. Wow, that, that, that's freaking martial law. I mean, that's that's horrific. That's that's what. Yeah, it sounds did. like what they did uh, during World War Two, and they, when they put the Japanese in uh, essential camps, you know. And and it's exactly what Cuba did. Like, I was proposing what Cuba had done, and I got it passed unanimously in the state debate tournament and at Harvard. Like, America in nineteen ninety seven pre nine eleven passing laws, having students pass laws that would put people in concentration camps because they're HIV positive. Like, what? And so, they thought it important enough for me to go ahead and teach a little bit, teach how I did it. And so I did. Um, basically it. It's interesting. So you do have some background, and, and you do have some clout. So... So we start... Yeah, I, you know, we can go all the way back to before, we can go back to the Dark Ages with trebuchets and, and hurling dead bodies over kingdom walls in hopes that, because they knew that germs were a thing, they didn't necessarily understand how germs worked, but they knew that if you, if you cut yourself and, you know, there was poop in the cut, you'd get infected and you'd die. So they, they started experimenting with this uh, as far back as, as recorded history, essentially. They just didn't yeah, Rome. necessarily... Rome. Yeah, Rome. Romans uh, would stab cadavers and stab their own poop. Um, so that when they stab somebody, you get go sepsis. Uh, British archers... Um, they would put their arrows in front of them. It seems like a small thing, putting arrows in the dirt in front of you. But no, that increases the chance of you getting infected, increases the chance of you getting a broke-back fever. Um, and broke-back fever is tetanus. So there's a Not to be confused you. with broke-back mountain. That's a whole other episode. <laughs> and, and, and some would say more enjoyable. Definitely more enjoyable. Um, <laughs> now, if you don't know it... Oh, God, wow. Um, now, if you don't know what, what tetanus <laughs> is, there's... Wow. Oh, I, I'm not, Let's I, not forget, I, Hollis I, is a heterosexual married man. Happily and, married uh, man. With his beautiful <laughs> wife. And I've never, I've never been gay man at all in my life. So, it, it, moving it's not, It's not yeah, what you I'm said not, last Tuesday. Oh, <laughs> oh stop. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not discounting it. If you like it, go for it. It's just not my cup of tea, and you know, hey, we 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 could have tea across the table. Um, His pronouns is him, him, and uh, and 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 that's it, him. So, oh God, where was I? <laughs> so, anyways, uh, there's a there's a famous photo, not photo, painting of somebody who has his arms behind him, 
his wrist turned into like a little like like monkey clawed almost and he's his back is off the table and he's on basically on the back of a head his heels and his elbows that is tetanus and tetanus is one of the most horrific diseases you could possibly have your bones literally break because your your muscles tighten so tight um it's just horrific and they they knew that if they put their their arrows in the dirt higher percent chance of that um they knew if they got to a city and the city had a river through it that was their sole water supply if everybody pooped in the river the people in the city would get sick i mean this is like this is this is easy um Examples of, of other forms of biowarfare that's really chemical biowarfare is, you know, after Hannibal, that glorious man um, who basically just smashed Rome for eight years, uh, when, when Hannibal lost and, and Carthage was taken over, you know, Rome, quote-unquote, salted the fields. Well, why would you salt the fields? Well, it's biowarfare. If you can't grow crops, you can't feed an army. If you can't feed an army, there is no army. Sure. Bingo, bango. That's why you do it. Um, mm-hmm. That same man, Hannibal, had bioweapon, biowarfare on a macro level. Um, Africa is filled with venomous reptiles, uh, snakes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so you put up a whole bunch of, you know, pit vipers and, and spitting cobras in a clay pot covered over with, you know, a, a, a cloth covering. And then when the other boat gets near your boat, you launch it to be your catapult or just chuck it onto their, their deck and then. You know, the, the pot with 10 spitting cobras breaks on their deck, and now the spitting cobras are pissed. Now, mm-hmm. you have 10 spitting cobras at your feet. Are you going to be more worried about spitting cobras or the guy who's shooting you with an arrow? I ain't looking at the guy shooting you with an arrow. <laughs> I'm looking at the spitting cobras, uh, especially since if you wear armor in a sea battle and you fall, over the, you fall overboard, what happens to you? Go straight to the bottom. Right. So people don't wear armor in, in sea battles. Uh, or if they do, they wear floating armor, i.e. wood armor. And that's stupid, so they just don't wear armor. Um, and so you, throughout history, I'm getting to be brief on this, because uh, I think we spent too much time on it in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people did a lot of really, really messed up stuff. Like, like mid-16th, 17th century, excuse me. The Polish took spit from rabid dogs. And they shot them towards their enemy. Um, of course, everybody knows about the smallpox blankets. Mm-hmm. Uh, two years after, um, you know, Columbus sailed the the ocean blue. Um, Spanish were, were fighting the Italians. Was it fourteen hundred ninety-two? I think fourteen hundred ninety-four. I think this is or ninety-five. <laughs> I'm not sure. No, it was ninety-five. So it'd be three years. Sorry. I just um, I thought of that song. Uh, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Anyway, go ahead. Day and now it's okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so they, the, the Spanish were, were, who were you know, not nice people. Um, the Spanish Inquisition, what? Uh, you know, killing off the Indians, what? Um, you know, et cetera. They were, just nice. they were nice, not nice people. They are now, but they weren't back then. They took blood from leprosy patients and mixed it with red wine, uh, and then fed it to the French soldiers, or sorry, the Italian soldiers, um, and their French soldiers. Uh, that, Sick. That's un, that's just unfathomable. I mean, that's that's horrific. Because um, everybody knows about the Mongols throwing the bodies, 
you know, over the cities of in Crimea and, and a few other places. Mm-hmm. Um, now, when you think of you know dead bodies and you think of blood, but there is something else that you gotta really think of when it comes to biowarfare. And I'm gonna start with patient zero. Um, and so patient zero doesn't ma- matter how he got it. Just stop. Don't confuse that. Just think about dude number one. First dude got the disease. Because <laughs> he may have, disease may have been created inside him. So dude has a disease. Let's call him Bob. And so Bob is now the vector to go ahead and spread that disease to somebody else. He is vector. And there are vectors that he can go ahead and spread. Now, secure skin is really a good, a good membrane around your body. The only thing it really mm-hmm. exerts is piss, urea, sweat. Um, so if you have a disease that has a vector of going through the sweat, that's awesome. The other thing we do is we all breathe in, out, in, out, in, out. Um, and so that would be another vector. Your blood would be another vector. Your semen would be another black vector. Your poop would be another vector. Your pee would be another vector. So you have person and then vector. Now, the disease then has in person one a few things. The initial point wherein how much disease is needed to get a critical mass to cause an infection, A. The lower that is, oftentimes the more communicable the disease is. Then the amount of time it takes for symptoms to arrive. But most of the time before that, but not all, it is the amount of times before somebody becomes contagious. So you have disease start. When somebody becomes contagious, that can be before or after the symptoms are exhibited. Okay? And then it's the symptoms. Now, most of the time, um, symptoms are a result of your human body fighting the disease, like in a cold. It's, the, the cold doesn't give you the cold. The, the symptoms are your body going ahead and fighting the disease the best way it knows how. A higher temperature is your body fighting the disease. You getting plugged up, it's your body fighting the disease. You having diarrhea. It's your body going, I need to get this stuff out of my gut. I'm getting rid of it, yeah. Your body fighting the disease. The only major, well, there's, there's a few, but the, the one major where the disease where your body um, is not fighting the disease and you exhibit symptoms is hemorrhagic fevers, Ebola. Um, when you're bleeding under your fingernails and out of your ears and out of your nose and out your bum bum, not the tip of your wee-wee or your whatever um no that's mm-hmm. that's that's ebola <laughs> that's that's what ebola does to you um that's not a, that's not your body producing symptoms that is ebola that's ebola making you do that um most diseases aren't like that unless they're lethal now we all know the lethal diseases and you can you can say them off your hand smallpox anthrax yep. uh, <clears throat> ebola yep um, yellow fever yellow fever yep uh which is making a comeback in Africa right now. Uh, malaria. Yep. If you're white and you get malaria, whoo, that's not fun. Um, mm. And so, uh, speaking of which, um, Napoleon, the, the Napoleonic ar- armies, when they went ahead and attacked uh, Mantua in Italy, <sighs> Mantua, sorry, is, is on a plain. It has rivers going through it. So they plugged up the rivers and flooded the, the plain, right? 
and created a huge swarm of mosquitoes to increase the amount of malaria in the city, so the city would would uh, would quit. <laughs> the city would surrender. Successful. Good job. Um, and so, so that's what you have. And then you have, after you have onset of symptoms, you have onset of how long it takes for those symptoms to wind themselves out. And once again, the stop of you being contagious is either before or after those symptoms. Now, the final symptom could be death, or it could be that you get better. Um, it, just, it just is different with every disease. Now, the object of biowarfare, as we know it today, is to just play those things. And we'll get to that you know, at a later point in this conversation and how, just how everything got dialed in to the point where it's, it's, it's really scary. Um, we'll talk about the Jason Project, et cetera. But. And with that being said, I think now is a phenomenal time to discuss our book suggestion for the week. I'm going to leave it over to Hollis to talk about his book recommendation, uh, which I think is going to be fairly interesting. And then, after that, we'll start the second part of the episode by talking about the more recent and more advanced methods of biowarfare, specifically the horrific events that occurred under Unit 731. Any comments about that, Hollis? No. Let's get back to it. Well, um, this is a book that was given to me by a very, very, very good friend of mine, uh, Paul DeRocha Sr. You know him quite well, John. Sure do. And, uh, Paul, Paul Bunyan okay. DeRocha Sr. Paul, pretty much. I know Paul DeRocha Sr. has been a friend of mine for a long, long time. I knew his son before I knew him. I liked him so much. Uh, he lived on my couch during college for nine months. Um, it was a very interesting dynamic, but he was one of the most amazing periods of my life. He woke me up. That says the thing. Not that I wasn't already woke, but I became woke after speaking to him. Not woke in modern day, but like, you know, to political stuff. Woke so He woke her, yeah. So the book that he gave me, I wasn't exposed to it until I was in my academy for the National Park Service for being a law enforcement officer. I later became a ranger at Cumberland Island National Seashore. And um, the book he gave me, I had nothing to do. I didn't have a TV in the house. I didn't like most of my roommates, except for Nick Blackie. Um, There's nothing to do in the town. It was cold. It was terrible. Um, yeah, it was bad. But the book he gave me is called Patriots. And a novel of survival and the coming collapse. And it's by a guy named James Wesley Rawls. And the book is about a group of people who prep properly um, during a societal collapse um, where there's massive inflation. Um, basically, society breaks down, lights go out, um, disease becomes rampant, um, you know, little infections like a cut to your finger can cost you your life. Um, which is true. And um, it, it, it sets out where the, the, these people all have a compound in Idaho slash Montana, and uh, that region anyway. And the, they go ahead and survive. Now, it tells this, this. Now, there's multiple books in the series, and there's multiple books about people who exist within the main framework of the original book. 
and it, it tells the stories of you know, people who didn't make it out of the city fast enough and it tells the stories of people who got there and survived and the, the government that came in later and the chinese forces and the american and the european union forces that came in and, and basically stabilized the united states in the fight against those forces by the locals <laughs> and what's more interesting in the book is it's an interesting read but it's also a how-to on how to survive something like that without giving you the specifics it tells you how to go ahead and make your device explosive devices it tells you how to armor around your windows and around your house to snipe through windows proper width of, of steel um, it just basically gives you an idea of how to exist in times like that in a, in a fictionalized I've always been someone who likes water survival. I, I dare say I'm not really a prepper, but something close to it since I was 18. But this book really, really changed my mind about how, how, when, and why I would do a lot of things. Um, phenomenal read. Um, the first, let's see, if I open it. The first edition, and it keeps getting updated, so it's more and more and more, um, and more, and more present. The latest edition was at least 2013, and its first edition was 1990. So now it includes stuff like you know, bits and pieces about the internet and you know, things of that nature. Um, so, folks, we, we've got Patriots, a novel of survival and the coming collapse, and it was uh, its, it's uh, authors James Wesley Rawls, and essentially, exactly, America faces a full-scale socioeconomic collapse in the near future. Stock market plummets, hyperinflation cripples commerce, Mounting crisis passes the tipping point, and the book essentially takes you on a journey on how to handle that, and and so brings you through this. Uh, I haven't read it yet. I, I have it on Audible, it's available on Audible. It's available on Amazon and wherever books are sold. Uh, so Pretty definitely nice. encourage you to check it out and uh, let us know yeah, what this, you think. This book came from Barnes and Noble, like three miles away. So um, yeah, you can pretty much get it anywhere, and it's a it's it's not a bestseller. But it's sold a whole lot because it's it's always present. It's always updated by Mr. Rawls. Terrific. Um, so let's get back into um, oh, biowarfare. Now so we were talking about the history. We were talking about yeah. the history of, of biowarfare. Uh, we were talking about you know some of the crude methods of discovery, and um, you know we we. we we're going to have to have a second episode on this, but what I'd like you to do is, is sort of start talking about, if you could, your understanding of the more recent events that have occurred. When I say recent, I'm talking about the last maybe 100 years. Uh, you know, specifically, one atrocious example is what the Japanese did. Uh, I don't think enough people know about this, but just the fact that these these people can do something so atrocious uh, baffles my mind. It absolutely baffles my mind. Um, I'll start off like 45 years previous with just a real quick quip about uh, germ theory. You know, gone gone in the 1880s were the days when people thought that you could get malaria from bad air. We figured out as a protozoa, and so once we figured that out as a as a 
race as a human beings, then governments were just started to decide, well, if we can figure out how to do this and we can get the nastiest strain, i.e. pick the strain that came from that, that they just killed the ten, last 10 goats. Um, then we can have a really nasty strain that kills every goat or horse in the enemy army to Lemuria, um, specifically, which was which was used in World War Two and World War One, um, and so it it all made sense to go ahead and have a bio warfare and later on a chemical warfare uh, groups in the in the major superpowers. Now, bio warfare in World War One was used. Uh, People don't really realize it, but the mode of transport in World War One wasn't a truck or a tank; it was a horse. And so, if you could get rid of the enemy's ability to transport foodstuffs or anything by killing their horses, then you win, right? Or mm-hmm. you know, the, there's no back then. There wasn't really anything like refrigeration, and so if you were going to have beef at the front line, you had to have a cow. Um, yes, yes, million Napoleon times they figured out canning and. Thank God for that. But it still wasn't to the level where we have it today. Um, and I think people have to understand the fact that up until the American Revolution, wars were fought in a very specific way uh, in, in, in postmodern times, if you will. You know, the Napoleonic Wars, the, the, the War of 1812, the, not the War of 1812, but wars prior to 17. In the 1750s and 60s, but before the Revolutionary War, you would stand out on a battlefield and you would shoot your guns, and then your opponents would stand in front of you and shoot your gun, shoot their gun, and it was like a, a like a duel essentially. Uh, it wasn't until the Revolutionary War that the that the Americans started using tactics like guerrilla warfare. And at that point, we realized that, okay, if you're going to win a war, you're going to have to fight essentially dirty. You're going to have to hide in the trees and act like, you know, they, they used Indians to train them how to create traps and flank. And all, all, everything that we know of with modern warfare, it, 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 the bio-warfare the bio that, that, we, that we've been discussing with, you know, catapulting dead bodies over walls that was not something that was readily used it wasn't until after that revolutionary war that they started to try to think outside the box and think about ways to eradicate their enemy without incurring collateral damage and from my standpoint that you know i have no expertise behind it but from like my research into history, it seems like they started to use it much more um, strategically at after that point. And then, you know, then you have the War of 1812. Then you have uh, the First World War. And, and, and that's when biomedical warfare really took, really catapulted into modern mainstream history. Yeah, and, and so the... The Germans used it uh, specifically against you know the, the horses. The you know we we were starting to dabble in it, but we never really paid much attention to it. The Brits got involved. Um, 
But because those guys started playing not very nice with each other, the Japanese, who at this point had gone from uh, being a feudalistic society to being an industrialized society, and were starting to you know get eyes on taking over Korea and China, which they did, um, they they were starting to really really dabble in it. Now you gotta go back into the time. Give you an idea. Nineteen sixties is when. The U.S. FBI went ahead and figured out that if you take 20% gelatin, you put it in water, let it congeal, that is a good mimic for a human body. Before that, how did you test your rifle? You either did it on a goat or a pig, or you did it on a human body. Right. Um, and you know how did you Cadavers. test your pistol? Yeah how how did you how do you know how long? Somebody can stay in 46-degree water before they freeze to death. Well, why is that important? Well, if you know that the person who jumped out of his plane and parachuted in the water is going to freeze to death in 3.5 hours, why the hell are you still looking for his body and waiting, wasting resources at 5 hours? Right. Why? I mean, this is war. Why are you doing that? Or if, you know, you know, Bobby's at 27,000 feet and he jumps out of his airplane and has to pull his chute on the way down. Well, he passed out on the way down. And now he just went splat. Um, on because, of because of hypoxia. Right? Because of hypoxia. How do you know oxygen? How do you know that? And how do you tell your people, hey, you know, get down below 18,000 feet before you punch out, otherwise you're going to pass out? Um, how do you know that? Well, someone had to try it. And in Germany, you had the likes of uh, Mengele, Rudolf Mengele, never paid for his crimes. Uh, he tore Argentina and lived out the rest of his life. But when you when you go to the to China, not China, when you go to Japan, um, you get something called Unit Seven or Unit One Hundred, and then Unit Seven Three One. Now, Unit One Hundred was predominantly for animals to figure out how to slow down the enemy animal trains and the en enemy food lines in order to prevent them from resupplying their troops in the front. Gasoline still wasn't a huge thing. Gasoline still wasn't a thing that was readily available at for a lot of countries. You know, um, like, where did Germany get its gasoline? It didn't. By the end, by the end they are cutting down hundreds of acres of, of of pine forest just so they can get a couple of gallons of gas. Sure. And ladies and gentlemen, I, I have to interrupt here and, and just say, if you have children, you know, under 13 that are listening to this podcast, I, I advise you to use discretion because, you know, what we're about to get into with 713 is atrocious. It, it's, it's absolutely atrocious. And, and we're, to, we're, we're, we're talking about something just, that is egregiously aberrant and evil, evil. But these people did it so that they could supposedly have a better understanding and, and, and reach some sort of enlightenment. So that's where ethics and morality has to come into play. Like, what, what were these people thinking? They, they, had, they had no grasp of, of uh, dignity. I, I don't know. I can't imagine conducting these experiments 
and having some sort of what, what, what the hell were they thinking when they were doing this? So just view, listen, listener discretion is definitely advised at this point. Yes. Um, give you an idea of the Japanese mentality at the time. Um, there's something called, and this is this is where I also suggest, you know, if you got children, uh, they shouldn't be in the room. In my opinion. Um, there's something called the Rape of Nanking. Now, the Rape of Nanking was many weeks long, and it is exactly what it was. It was the Rape of Nanking. Um, Japanese soldiers went ahead would, and would would do bad things to ladies, multiple of them at, multiple of them at a time. And then they would then kill them. Step bamboo into things where bamboo shouldn't be stuck. Uh, hit them with bayonets. Uh, kill children in the streets. Um, and you say, this is horrific. Why would they do such a thing? Well, no, it was a celebrated. Um, in the paper, uh, Nichi Nichi Shimbun, uh, in Tokyo, there was two gentlemen who were basically in a battle to see who would go ahead and win. Now, there's, there's two gentlemen. Um, and what they did was they had a race. They were at 58 and 53 when they started it off. And they were racing to 100 and how many people they could go ahead and behead or murder with their swords um, and see who could get to 100 first. Now, during one day of battle, they both crossed 100, but they were not recording the times of their kills. And so they ended up being at 106 and 103. And they said, well, since we don't know who won, let's start over and go to 150. Um, this is a true story. Um, these people, with their swords that were given to them, because Japanese officers were given a pistol and a sword, they killed over 100 people apiece as a contest. Not that these people needed to die or had to die, just as a contest. And it was celebrated in their national papers. Um, these people did meet a proper end. After the war, they were taken they were you know summarily um convicted of the war crimes surprise surprise and they were executed both by firing squad um the firing squads didn't shoot him in the head they shot him in the stomach yeah why subsequently because... the Nur nuremberg code uh-huh essentially eradicated all of that that type of unethical medical experimentation yes uh, and, but i mean <sighs> But we call the Nuremberg Code, but it should have been the 731 Code. Because 731 was way beyond what the Germans did. Um, you know what I'm saying? Like, how do you know how many people a bullet will go through? Well, you, know, you find out by lining people up. That's what they did. Um, they, had the, they had a thing where it's called vivisection, where they would get American bomber pilots and fighter pilots and, and political opponents, etc., met this fate. And what they would do is they would get 10 doctors together. And those 10 doctors were responsible for keeping a person alive. Now, the person was not a called a person. They were called a log, as in a tree, a tree log, because they were just dehumanized. They would then go ahead and shoot a bullet into them, and they would vivisect them, which means they would do quadruple amputations. And then they would also have another group at the same time that was going ahead and p patching up the gunshot wounds that were in the chest or the stomach. How you graduated from the program is that the person who you vivisected lived. Now, when that person lived, they were still useful. They then could go and graduate to the biowarfare program. Now, Hollis, what's the biowarfare program? Biowarfare program was even more horrific. They would set up their munitions that they would use to go ahead and 
bombs or artillery. They would set up those munitions and then tie these torsos to stakes, you know, vertical. They'd set the bomb off and they would see who got anthrax or who got the disease in the surrounding area so they could see how effective bomb A was versus bomb B. Not only had you just lost all of your limbs, and you, you had a, a wound in your stomach or chest that just got patched up, you were then used for bio-warfare as a, as a human lab rat, as a log. Other things they did, they, they did exactly what I said earlier. They increased the altitude on people, put them in vacuum chambers. Um, they did cold experiments. They would pour water on them during the winter. They also did experiments with liquid nitrogen. They would completely freeze an uh, arm and then see if they could bring it back slowly. Because they didn't know. They didn't know if it could be possible to bring an arm back from completely frozen. You bring it back slowly. How, how, how else would you know? Yeah. And, and, and we know because these people figured it out. This um, goes back to, you know, the Middle Ages where... It, in, uh, I, I believe Cambridge and uh, Harvard used to exhume bodies or pay for bodies to be able to conduct experiments so that they had a better understanding as to how our anatomy worked. And, you know, some people would think this is, this is atrocious. To them, they were looking at it as a means with which they can become more enlightened to understanding the body. And they're just doing what their government told them to do so that that guilt was disassociated. And a lot of these war criminals <clears throat> use that tactic. I'm, I'm just doing, doing what I was told. Horrific. Yep. Horrific experiments in the United States. I think our yeah. next episode, uh, yeah. we, we we should start talking about some of the the the, the many experience uh, experiments that that were conducted uh, in the United States, including human radiation experiments, torture experiments, tests involving mind altering substances, wide variety of others. Why, uh, why is there Egyptian mi mosquitoes in South Carolina and Florida? <laughs> Thank the CIA and DARPA for that one. Um, I mean, it, you can just, it goes on and on. Um, but 731, the story isn't, isn't over yet. If you can imagine it, they did it. Now, I know you know the answer to this, but I'm going to say it you know, to the group anyway. The percent chance, the reason why you don't know about Unit 100 and Unit 731, you do know about Mengele and Auschwitz, Dachau, all those places that I've visited. Ugh. Chills up your spine. Um, by the way, guys, I, I wrote my senior year history thesis on how Florida uh, recorded and and put in the news the uh, the the Holocaust from 1933 to 1947. That was my senior year thesis. Um, and That's so, fa I'd actually like to read that. That's fascinating. It, it, it is Florida's it, response to what was going on at that time. Yeah, uh, Florida Florida oh. response. I went through. Several hundred, excuse me, several hundred microfiche, um, actually more than a thousand microfiche, and found every single article. Truly fascinating. And I found out that, yeah, we knew what was going on. <laughs> Damn right we knew. Um, this 
but we don't. We like to pretend we didn't. Uh, but we don't hear about seven three one because the percent chance that you got out of seven three one once you got in those doors, for you to get out and live was zero. More than ten thousand people, and I think it was much higher than that. Estimates go up as high as fifty. Some estimates go as low as two or three, and people laugh at that one. Uh, but more than ten thousand people went in those doors, and because they realized, oh my God, these people are going to tell other people what we did. At the very end, when they were about to lose the unit, they lined everybody up next to a river and they shot them all dead. Frostbite test, yeah, syphilis, I, rape, and forced pregnancies. Yeah, and and, and it, the, the the most egregious one that I I remember. Vivisection gives me nightmares. In vivisection, the idea that 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 they are without any anesthesia amputating limbs to see how long you would survive it, it uh, it's unimaginable and then and then you're not it's not over for you yet um the, the hor- most horrific one was the nitrogen liquid nitrogen ones where they froze the 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 limb solid and then when you quickly thaw the limb what happens is the flesh uh, basically just turns into a goo. It sort of sloughs off. And so when they pulled your hands out of the water, your bones came out, but your flesh stayed in the water. And you got to see that. And then they just vivisected you. I mean, it's like, what in the absolute... I, I, it's just unfathomable. Uh, if that did. doesn't make you angry, I don't know what will. Oh, this will make you angry. <laughs> Guy who uh, guy who did the whole thing, Shiro Ishii, the guy who ran the whole thing, got sentenced to uh, 20 years. Several of them got sentenced to death. Not one was in jail in 1958. Not one was executed. None of them. Not one. I mean, not even the ones that went to Russia. And the ones that went to Russia, they said, "We'll give you, we'll give you our notes." Like, not that the Russians or the Americans could take them anyway, but they said, we'll work for you if you let us go. And the Russians said yes, and you know what the Americans did? They said yes. And we sent those people to Fort Detrick, and we sent those people out in Nevada, and they worked for us until the 1970s. And it wasn't until that generation of scientists, those Japanese scientists, started retiring, retiring, and dying off in 1970 that we decided to end the program. So those evil people worked for us for over 20 years and then in 1970 when those people started retiring nixon was like oh we got what we wanted out of them and we're closing the program not one stayed in jail more than 10 freaking years and these monsters these monsters it's 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 sort of like the head of the uh um the aerospace engineer regiment of the luswafa for uh, Germany, what's his name that went to work for uh, NASA? Yeah, you know, I, know he, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, it, it's. Uh, it, I guess the United States at that time was thinking, okay, so they did all these horrible things under the Japanese government, and it's done. And there's a lot of research that they were able to ascertain from it, so we could probably use a lot of that information here in the united states and uh, i think in our next episode uh we we may talk about more of the atrocities conducted by unit 731 as much as i hate knowing about this it needs to be known 
it needs to be known because then it dives into a philosophical debate about ethics and moral ethics and morals, essentially. And, you know, where, what would you do in a, in a position delineated to you by your government? China right now is having people do anal swabs for the coronavirus. Uh-huh. And, you know, at, at what point are you going to draw the line and say, I'm not going to do this? And so, to me, it's, 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 it's a really profound topic to think about and set boundaries for because, you know, th- th- these are human beings that are committing atrocious atrocities towards other human beings. I think in our next episode, we're going we're gonna, to, if, if, if you agree, we're going to talk about unethical human experimentation in the United States, I, you know. Uh, I, I agree, um, and I I, I want to not conclude because I still have a little bit to talk about. But I want to set this up for for next week. There's a group called the Jason Group. Um, they fall they've fallen by the wayside recently in the past ten years, uh, but for a long time they were a big time think tank for the U.S. government, um, and they codified biowarfare extremely extremely well, and they put it into six broad groups of potential uses of biowarfare. They said future threats, but let's be honest, you, you're not developing... It, once you get the technology to build a bioweapon and put it in a delivery system, and you could do that in two days, why keep this stuff on hand? Okay? Let's just put that out there. But they put it into six different groups. Binary biological weapons. Designer genes. We're not talking about Levi's. Here, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, gene therapy as a weapon, stealth viruses, host-swapping diseases and designer diseases. That's what they were talking about in 1997. That's on top of what we have, which are, you know, fungus, bacteria, protozoa, viruses. Um, just, the technology's been there. We had most of the, we had genetic modification in the 70s. Um, put it in perspective, I saw a 23 megapixel camera in 1988. I saw that. Wait, wait, what? 23 megapixel camera? In 1988. What were you, Um, like five? I was nine, but yes. Um, I was like, what the hell is a megapixel? And my uncle was like, just just look. And it took like an hour and a half to load up on his computer. One video, or one not video, one, one single frame. But we had those back in 1988. That was declassified stuff. I'm sure there's thousands of megapixels. What you know? What are they putting on the satellites? Oh yeah, um, well, we know about gigapixels. You can take a photograph with a gigapixel camera, and you can zoom into the to the head of a uh, quarter. Yeah, from a mile away. 2016. You know, look for Alex Jones and the, the famous photo looking out from, you know, the Diaz. Uh, you, you can find them. Uh, see my uncle too <laughs> but but yeah i just want you guys to think about it and and you've heard this in previous podcasts if you have the ability to do something and you have the will to do something you're gonna find somebody who's willing to do that something and that's what we're going to talk about next week ladies and gentlemen it's it's a pleasure as always where to listen to us you can listen to us on breaker 
Google Podcast, Overcast, Podca- Pocket Cast, Radio Public, Spotify, Copy, R- Copy RSS, and wherever podcasts are listened to, essentially. You can get in contact with us at inbetweentherecord at gmail.com. Uh, we're not taking any donations yet. This is something that we're doing on our own time. We love the company. We love the fact that we're listened to in multiple countries. Uh, we're all over the place. We're in Chechnya. We're in... Uh, where else are we? Let me just take a look here real quick. Uh, we, we are listened to all over the world. We have uh, listeners in the United Kingdom, in Canada, in Germany, Indonesia, Australia, Ireland, Puerto Rico, Shout out to my French friends in France. Uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a phenomenal privilege to be able to sit here with my best friend, Hollis Parks, and uh, be able to talk about things that are just uh, obscure and non-mainstream. And hey, you know. I, uh, I never thought we'd get more than 10 listeners. <laughs> I was wrong. Um, so thank you guys for listening that is absolutely epic that we have people all around the world listening and people in just about every state listening and you know it's just it's just two guys who are interested in really weird stuff and I'm just I'm just I'm blessed to have you guys thank you thank you thank you from the bottom of my heart and guys as I always like to say you know uh, good luck have fun and don't die we'll see you on the next one <laughs> We'll see you on the next one, folks. It's been a pleasure. It has. Good night, guys.